Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. Welcome to The Payoff. I'm Antonia Cerejido. And I'm Chris Duffy. The Payoff is your custom-made audio companion to all of Mike's business and personal finance coverage, which you can find at mike.com slash the payoff. Today, it's time to dig into a finance topic that's on my mind constantly, for better or worse, student loans. Dun, dun, dun. So, so many Americans have student loan debt. 44 million, in fact. And that can have a huge impact on our lives, the choices we get to make, and the American economy as a whole. I have student loans, and as you know, I have that giant board (laughs) over my bed that tells me how much I have, and it literally looms over me at night. Yeah, Antonia has a literal board (laughs) counting her student loan debt above her bed at night. In case you're wondering what it's like to be a young person in America in debt. Uh, And I also graduated with student loans, but just recently I was able to finish paying them off and it felt really good. I was able to take down my own student loan tracking board. You had a tracking board? Of course not. That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard about. (laughs) But actually, like, I can't wait for you to explain how you accomplished it. Yeah. And I, I know that a lot of people feel like that about debt in general, like it'll never, ever get paid off. In fact, a new survey this year from CreditCards.com found that 12% of Americans with debt believe they will never pay off what they owe. And student debt can be particularly serious if you don't pay it off because it stays with you your whole life. It actually even haunts you into retirement. $170 million were withheld from retiree social security payments in 2015 because those people hadn't paid their student loans. Wow, that's really terrifying. Yeah, that's why we'll tackle it in our opening segment that we like to call, Oh Oh No! Because that's how both of us normally feel when we have to talk about money. Checking your student loan balances? Oh no! Worrying about how much to pay each month? Oh no! Wondering if you'll ever pay it all off? Oh no! Yeah, it's going to get really real, but we'll see if we can cut a path through the darkness of worry and into the light of understanding. And we're even going to call up an expert. Yep. And after we've talked through all of our own student debt, we'll have our big interview with someone who has a lot of experience thinking about the student loans of all Americans, former Department of Education Undersecretary Ted Mitchell. Undersecretary Mitchell actually oversaw the entirety of federal student aid from 2014 until earlier this year, including the whole federal student loan program. So he's a big deal. Seriously. Then for our final segment, The Bottom Line, we're going to bring back one of our expert payoff reporters to talk us through a troubling news story from a little earlier this year about the nation's largest student loan servicer, Navion. Hmm, I remember seeing this story and wondering if it affected anyone I know. I'm really curious to find out. And uh, we'll see if it affects you, Antonia. Stick around. Okay, here we go with our opening segment where we get over our worries and confusion about something in the world of money. You know, the kind of money stuff that makes you go, oh Oh, no! no! For this episode, it's time to face the facts. America is in the middle of a serious student debt crisis. 
Yeah, here are some scary numbers from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. As of the end of 2016, there was $1.3 trillion in total U.S. student loan debt. There are 44.2 million Americans with student loan debt. There is a student loan delinquency rate of 11.2, so like more than 10% of people are just not making their payments. And the average monthly student loan payment for a borrower aged 20 to 30, so like me, is $351. So it's a huge deal. Basically, this is all over the place. A lot of people have this problem, and it's not necessarily getting better. In fact, I think maybe the scariest part of this whole situation is that having all this student loan debt is actually affecting decisions that younger people are making. Um, According to a 2015 YouGov survey, one in seven Americans with student loans have delayed getting married due to their debt. Oh, my God. Did you get delayed getting married because of your debt? I was delayed in getting married for all sorts of reasons, but I don't think student loan debt was one of them. If you think about it, like original marriages were like two cows for a lady. Yeah. So it's not it, today. It's just like student debt for a lady. Interesting. You're saying that student loans are the new dowries. Maybe. I don't... <laughs> yeah, but it, it is affecting it. And it, yeah. it's not even just marriage. More than one in three. So 41 percent of people with student loans have postponed either buying a house or an apartment. 25% have had to postpone moving out of their parents' home, which is a problem not just for young people, but also for their parents. If you're a parent <laughs> listening, this is affects you too. That's why someone's still in your basement. <laughs> Big decisions are getting put off because people owe so much money. Yeah, I mean, I can totally relate to that. I have to pay a significant amount in student loans. Actually, I pay close to the average. I pay around 380 a month. And does that amount of money affect decisions that you make, you think? It probably should more than it does. Like you'd be a married woman with a house and a car. <laughs> If you didn't have student loans. No. But the thing that stresses me out about student loans is how confusing it is. I feel like getting income and then paying income easy. But then there are all these like weird interest rates. And there's like I have one loan that has five subdivision loans. And I had literally for a year after I had my student loan, I would go onto the website and I would like click things and I'd be like, I paid something, but I had no idea what I was paying. And so uh, around a year ago, I like sat down and I looked at the website and I was like, you will become clear to me. Did it obey your command? Sort of. I mean, yeah, I feel I do feel like I have a much better grasp on it. But but I think that that's the thing about student loans is it requires a lot of attention. It requires clicking on your subdivisions and figuring out what are these different interest rates actually what so what was your strategy to pay off your loans so mine was you know the whole time that i was a teacher i had a really steady predictable income and part of my budget was just like i'm going to pay off my loans as fast as possible because i know that i live in a place that's pretty affordable i shared an apartment with a bunch of people in boston so it was affordable i also had this job that i knew what i'd be making and so i was like while i have this stability i'm going to try and pay it off as fast as possible but And this is something I'm curious to talk to our expert about. A confusing thing about student loans is even when you're being really like all the way responsible, like I was being, sometimes it's actually bad for your credit to pay it off too quickly. So then I was like, oh, am I making a mistake by paying it off? Should I actually wait and pay it off slowly? Yeah, this is something we should ask her about because they, like you were saying, it is confusing on all levels. It's confusing if you're not paying. It's confusing if you're paying. It's confusing if you're trying to pay it off. It's confusing if you never can figure out how you'll pay it off. Um, And I think that's one of the big problems with student loan debt is like it just has to occupy so much of your mind. You have to really be conscious about it. How much were you paying a month? I was paying about the same. Yeah. Yeah. Like between three and four hundred dollars. Yeah. Well, look, all of this stuff, it's really, really, really hard to know what to do and how you should be dealing with your loans. So we're going to actually call up an expert and find out what the real advice is here. Heather Jarvis is a lawyer and a student loan counselor, and she offers student debt training and advice for high debt individuals. 
All right, let's give her a call and see if she can help us out. This is Heather. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for talking with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So we have some questions for you from our own student uh, debt experience, and we're, we're curious to hear what your advice is and if you could maybe help us out. Be happy to. So one thing that we just discussed that I, that I had not heard about that I think is interesting is that Chris paid off his debt so fast that he actually hurt his credit score. Or that I've, I've heard that, you know, I paid, I finished paying off my student debt. And then afterwards, I heard that it was probably not a great decision to do that, that I should have built my credit score by keeping my debt for a longer period of time. Is that a real thing? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, you build your credit score over time. And so when you when you owe money and you pay it back gradually, it, it gives you sort of an opportunity to to show that you can make on-time payments over an extended period. Uh, on the other hand, when you have lots of outstanding debt, that's not uh, super for your prospects for other credit either. And if you pay slowly, you tend to pay more over time. So that has a, a direct financial impact uh, on your wallet. Uh, so another question that I have is when I first got my student loans, I, I currently still have to pay off like 20000 I was incredibly confused and I didn't understand what I was paying to where. And one of my loans is like has like three or five subdivisions. What does that mean? Can I pay off some subdivisions quicker than other subdivisions? Yeah, it's really confusing. It's not unusual for us to have two or three, sometimes even more individual student loans for each semester we're in school. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is that there are strict borrowing limits on the different federal student loan programs. So sometimes we'll get like a Perkins loan for a limited amount and then an unsubsidized Stafford loan and then a subsidized Stafford loan. And some people also get um, other kinds of federal loans and private loans. I always recommend that the first thing is to get a really clear inventory of your loans. And the best way to do that is to start with the federal database that is the central source of information. And it's called the National Student Loan Data System. And that's a good place to figure out exactly what your federal loans are. Then to the extent that you might have any private loans, there isn't any central uh, source of that information. So it's a good idea to just pull a copy of your credit report, which you can get for free at annualcreditreport.com and just compare your federal loan record to your credit report. And whatever's on your credit report that says education loan but isn't on your federal record is your private loan. And if you're in college and you're like looking at all these loans and taking things out, are there mistakes that people make because they like got a loan from an evil company as opposed to like a good company. Are there things like that that you can kind of proactively? I know I didn't look at that at all, but are there ways in which I should have maybe? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the way to start is recognizing that federal student loans are almost always cheaper than private loans, and they are definitely less risky. They have all kinds of consumer protections that private loans do not. So everyone should start by filling out that FAFSA, the free application for federal student aid, which is what enables you to um, apply for federal student loans. And, and then use those loans um, it, before you consider looking at a private loan. When it comes to, you know, which private lenders are more evil than others, you know, they do have a tendency to, to 
have um, some, you know, pretty scary business practices in terms of in, you know, they're not flexible. They don't typically modify loans or work with borrowers who might be struggling. I'm not sure that I would necessarily single out one as being, you know, the most evil, but in general, they don't tend to be very consumer friendly. So for instance, I only have federal loans, but I know that there are different strategies, like you can pay off one loan and then another loan, or you can pay them all off at different rates. Like, What are some tips for people in terms of strategizing how to pay off their loans? Yeah, so to begin with, you should understand that you're likely to have a variety of different interest rates on your federal student loans because interest rates are set by Congress. And depending on when you borrowed, you could have federal student loans at very low rates, as low as like 2% if they're super old, or as high as like 8.5%. And it really depends on when you did your borrowing and what degree program you were in. So it's a good idea to prioritize your repayment by looking at the interest rates, but also at some other features. For example, if you are someone who qualified to borrow a subsidized loan, The subsidy means that the government takes care of the interest for you during certain periods, um, especially when you're in school. So if you have uh, borrowed for an undergraduate degree, for example, and you think you might at some point attend uh, some kind of graduate program, the subsidized loans will have that interest subsidy kick back in if you return to school. So they're a little bit of a lower priority for repayment than the unsubsidized loans. But your question is a good one because you can't just pay on one loan and not pay on the rest. You'll be required to make at least a minimum payment on every loan you have. And then if if your budget allows, you can pay more than what's due on loans that you sort of cherry pick for faster retirement. And that's where you, you know, in my view, it makes sense to consider the interest rates but also other features like, you know, I know you said you don't have any private loans, but for those who do, it might be smart to, to make those a priority, even if the interest rates are not um, much different uh, than the federal loans. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have a question for you. I also heard that if you, if you make payments for a certain amount of time, like 10 years, then the rest of it disappears. Is that true? It's a lot more complicated than that. There, there are some um, federal loan forgiveness provisions that can be really super for some people, um, but they have a tremendous amount of detail, much more complexity than they should. Um, what you're referring to is public service loan forgiveness, which can be earned if you do everything right um, in as little as 10 years, but it's not automatic. And people can earn public service loan forgiveness only when they choose a specific repayment plan and make payments on time each month on a certain kind of federal loan while they're working full time for a qualifying nonprofit or government employer. And so, yes, there is some potential to earn some loan cancellation or forgiveness in as little as 10 years if you're working in public service. Wait, what would qualify as public service? Public service is defined really broadly. So it's all full-time paid work for a nonprofit organization that is recognized as a 501c3 by the IRS and full-time paid work for the government at every level, so like state, local, federal, tribal, government employment, and a few other really narrowly defined nonprofit positions. 
So you don't have to do any particular kind of work. So you don't have to be a lawyer or a teacher or social worker necessarily, but you have to work under an organization that is government or nonprofit. So my actual job outside of this podcast is I'm a producer for a show on NPR called Latino USA that is run by a nonprofit. Would I qualify? Potentially, yes. I mean, NPR is certainly um, a 501c3. And the the tricky part, though, is that because um, I know you said you have an undergraduate degree, typically uh, people don't borrow, air quotes, enough in undergraduate school from the federal loan programs that you would have anything left to forgive after making payments for 10 years based on your income. So only if if you were really underpaid, which you may well be, as many of us are, (laughs) um, but you you have to have a kind of dramatic debt-to-income ratio for it to really pan out for you. So a kind of oversimplified rule of thumb is that if if you earn much more money in a year than what you owe on your federal student loans, then you probably are going to be required to pay your loan off in um, over 10 years and won't end up having anything left to forgive. Where would somebody be able to find out if they qualify? That's somebody being Antonio. Yeah, that's someone being me. (laughs) Start by um, running some numbers on, there are a lot of different tools. You can start with the repayment estimator that's published by the Department of Education. Uh, You can find that online, Um, but you also want to recognize that you you must have um, direct student loans, which are the kind that we're all getting now from the federal government. But for those of us who went to school before the summer of 2010, some people will have older federal loans that will need to first be consolidated into a direct loan before they can become eligible. You having gone to school more recently, your loans are probably already direct loans, but that's worth verifying. And then you have to see about choosing an income-driven repayment plan. And by that, uh, that's kind of an umbrella term that refers to several different versions, uh, including income-based repayment and pay-as-you-earn. For you, pay-as-you-earn would probably be the first one to look at because it sets the lowest payments and and therefore gives you the, the best opportunity for forgiveness. Wow. But this means that like I can't do my next job, which was become millionaire. So that's... <laughs> well, you <laughs> could. You, Nonprofit you, you, millionaire. You could, but... Yeah. If you become a millionaire, you're going to have to pay some part of that million to your loan. Yeah. <laughs> this has been so helpful for me, obviously, uh, but it's just really helpful to get some actual advice on student loans because it is so confusing. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for covering the topic. Have a good one. You have a good too. one. Okay. So it feels like we went from feeling completely overwhelmed, a full oh no, to actually feeling okay. I mean, that was some of the most useful time I've ever had in my life. <laughs> yeah. You found out that you might qualify for this program, assuming you don't become nonprofit billionaire Antonio Cerrito. Assuming. And uh, after the break, we're going to be talking to the man who used to oversee all student loans for the federal government, former Education Undersecretary Ted Mitchell. Stay tuned. <music> Thank you. 
Joining us now is former Department of Education Undersecretary Ted Mitchell, who served under Secretaries of Education Arne Duncan and later John King. And he oversaw policies, programs, and activities related to post-secondary education, including, and this is why we're calling him up, federal student aid. Undersecretary Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first things first, for those who don't know what an undersecretary does, what were your main responsibilities under the Obama administration? Um, So my main responsibilities were in the area of higher education, so higher education policy, adult education, workforce training, uh, and importantly, in our topic today, uh, overseeing federal student aid. And, you know, we have a lot of questions around uh, student loans, but now that you're, uh, I assume, a little bit freer to talk than you were when you were currently serving. Um, What do you see as the biggest problems with student loans today? You know, I think that there are a couple. Um, First first of all, to just set the groundwork, uh, student loans have been increasing. They've been increasing for uh, some good reasons and some not so good reasons in the the category of good reasons. uh, We are recruiting a much more socioeconomically diverse student body to American higher education. Uh, and as um, lower income students come into higher education, it's uh, rational for them to borrow. Uh, borrowing against higher education is a, is a great investment. Uh, and the majority of students who do borrow pay off their loans just fine and uh, move into the middle class. That's what this is really all about. That's what the student loan program is designed to do. Um, I think there are some not so good reasons that student loans are expanding as well. College costs and price are increasing, and a large part of the price increase that's being borne by students and families uh, has to do with state disinvestment in higher education. Uh, in the Great Recession, states had to make really hard choices between a variety of different social services, and higher education was often, uh, often cut uh, by states. Unfortunately, as we've come out of the Great Recession, states have not reinvested uh, at the same level, and the majority of states are spending less today on higher education than they were spending before the before the Great Recession, and that's uh, again uh, that's a, uh, a tuition that has to be paid, and uh, it's falling on the backs of of students and students and families. Uh, in addition, uh, colleges, uh, although many colleges are are doing an admirable job of of controlling cost and price, uh, some colleges um, continue to raise uh, to raise prices, and and that's something that we need to need to be concerned about. So I, I want to just broaden out the scope. I understand that it's great that more people can enter uh, into higher education, but why do sto- student loans even exist? Like, when did student loans start becoming a common practice for people who wanted to enter higher education? It's a it's a good it's a good question. Students student loans have always been with us in one shape or one shape or form. Uh, you know, going back to the beginning of the uh, of higher education in the country, uh, student loans took the form of intergenerational loans. Uh, with um, uh, students borrowing money from their families or parents paying parents paying directly, with the expectation that uh, they would be taken care of in their old in their old age, uh, student loans became more formal uh, in the middle of the 20th century when banks uh, began uh, providing student loans uh, to students going to colleges and universities, uh, and then it, really importantly, uh, in the beginning of the Obama administration. Uh, one of the president's um, chief uh, reforms in this area was to move student lending from the private banking industry uh, into government, creating the direct student loan program. Uh, that was a move that saved taxpayers and students $60 billion uh, 
uh, and those $60 billion have been put to use supporting students through Pell Grants, uh, through easier access to loans, through subsidies for, for loan interest rates, and, and, and so on. Uh, and uh, really, that's the beginning of the student loan uh, uh, conversation that we're having today is the creation of the direct loan program. Okay, so uh, I had student loans, and I recently paid them off. And Antonia Congratulations. Still- Thank you. Um, and Antonia still currently has student loans and is uh, struggling to pay them off or w- stressing about paying them off. Yeah. Um, Antonia actually has a, a board above her bed where she keeps track of how much she still owes. Uh, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good thing. Uh, let's, let's, talk about, um, let's talk about ways that we can reduce your stress. Yeah. Uh, I, yes. When you say that's a good thing, probably not as home decor, but maybe as good uh, responsible finances. Uh, but one of the things that I'm curious about is for both of us, um, even as someone who paid off my student loans, the process is not easy. It, it's very complicated and confusing. Um, is there a way to make it simpler? It just seems like there's so many terms and you're a young person trying to figure out the world for the first time. And all of a sudden there's these websites that are confusing. And there are all these, this terminology on the site that I don't understand. Is there any effort to fix that? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with you. I think one of the things that everyone can agree on, whether it's a loan servicer uh, colleges and universities, the financial aid offices who try to explain this stuff uh, to, to students on the way out. Um, there are too many different loan programs with too many different repayment terms. Uh, and um, I hope uh, uh, that Congress um, takes seriously the task of simplifying those. Uh, the president proposed that uh, in almost each of, each of his annual budget messages. Uh, Congress did not uh, take us up on it, hopefully. Um, they will uh, when they reauthorize the Higher Education Act uh, in the next several years. Are you optimistic about that? Obviously, the administration has changed, and it seems like priorities have as well. Um, do you think that'll actually happen? No, we don't. We don't hear a lot from the Trump administration about their higher ed uh, policy, but I know that the leadership in uh, both the Senate and the House has been keen on higher ed reauthorization for for a number of years. It's um, uh, one of the places where there has been good cooperation, especially on the Senate side, between Democrats and Republicans. So I am I am cautiously optimistic. That's good to hear. One thing that I am aware that you did was run a series of experiments looking at the exit process. Could you describe a little bit more about what the experiment was like? And also, what, have you found any findings yet? Sure. A couple, couple things, just to take a half step back. Um, uh, there are two required counseling moments in, in um, uh, the direct loan program. One is at the beginning when students uh, take out their student loan. And uh, we require, the government requires uh, uh, institutions, universities that, that are supervising loans uh, to provide entrance counseling to, to borrowers uh, to help them understand uh, the whys and the wherefores of borrowing. And importantly, to help them understand uh, the the rate of borrowing because mm-hmm. we want to be sure, and I'm now speaking as a university administrator too, which I did for quite a while. Um, you know, we all want students to take out loans that are sufficient to help them graduate on time and move into their careers. Uh, we're not interested in students overborrowing, but it's also true that we're not interested in students underborrowing because it's important to finish, and we'll talk more about that later. Other, the other required counseling is at the end, um, and exit counseling is important. I don't know if either of you remember your exit oh, counseling, counseling interview. You do. Uh, uh, you're um, you're almost unique. A lot of people don't remember their <laughs> exit counseling. Uh, 
because it, it happens kind of at an awkward time. You're graduating, you're trying to finish up, you're packing your stuff and moving on, and all of a sudden you've got to go sit for 45 minutes in the financial aid office. And that was the genesis of the experiment. Isn't there a better way to do this? Uh, and so we uh, have experimented with um, some uh, online tutorials. Uh, we've experimented with uh, some technology that I guess you would describe uh, some uh, nudging technology using uh, text messaging. Uh, and we've, uh, we have found that um, things like the text messaging are good complements to the, to the exit uh, interviews, um, but probably can't, just can't replace it. The experiment that's underway right now is slightly different, and that's an experiment that allows some institutions to require counseling in the middle. Interesting. So not just beginning and end, but but in the middle. But and that's just started uh, this year, and so we won't have uh, we won't have good good data on that uh, for a while yet. But we we think that uh, there's huge promise in some of the the new technologies around around nudging and sending um, sort of quick short uh, messages to borrowers. I have a maybe bigger philosophical question for you. Um, why isn't college free? Why do people pay for education at all? So uh, historically, in, in this country, uh, um, higher education in particular has been a sort of a three-part deal uh, at the philosophical level uh, where we recognize that there are national interests, uh, a healthy economy, a healthy democracy, a smoothly functioning civil society, social mobility, um, that's served by uh, a thriving higher ed sector. And so the federal government has a stake in it and puts skin in the game. Uh, and you know, that's Pell Grants, it's uh, student loans, uh, it's other kinds of subsidies for higher education institutions. States, likewise, uh, have uh, a stake in a healthy higher education sector. And so there's a state investment. Uh, and we talked a little bit about the declining state investment and that being a problem. Then the third leg of the stool is um, students and families, because there is significant individual benefit uh, to higher education. And historically, as a country, um, we've believed that um, families and individuals need to have skin in the game as well. That contract is eroding, and I think that that's one of the one of the problems that we see in state disinvestment uh, and in the inability of the federal government to make that up. You know, the president I mentioned the 60 billion we were able to put back in when we created the direct loan program, but the, you know, the president has uh, made the most significant investments in higher education since the GI Bill, uh, President Obama, and uh, you know, over a million African-American and Latino students, uh, more Latino students than African-American students are in college today than ever have been before. The Pell Grant is up over $1,000 uh, per, per Pell Grant, um, but that has not been able to keep, to keep up with the uh, the rise of, uh, of of tuition prices, and so the skin in the game that we expect of families um, has become increasingly burdensome. So, so just as a follow up on that, then you know, when I hear you say skin in the game, it sounds like the reason college isn't free isn't because it's a logistical issue of like where does the money come from, but it sounds like it's actually that you think it shouldn't be free. Is that true? That's true for me. Interesting. Uh... But we have one last question for you, which is we have not been able to locate the current undersecretary in the Department of Education. Is it true that there is currently no replacement for your position? I think that this administration is working working its way through a 
complicated series of of appointments, not just in education, but 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 across the across the landscape. While I have a chance, I do want to go back to one thing about about student loans. We yeah. hear a lot about student student loan default, uh, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't make the point that the majority of student loan default problems occur when students don't complete. Uh, Secretary Duncan uh, said said uh, in uh, uh, quite often that the most expensive degree is the one you don't complete, and he's right. Folks who don't finish their college degree are at least three times more likely to default than those who do. Uh, and I think it's really important as we talk about student loans to connect it to finishing up and finishing what you start and getting through the program so that individuals can reap the benefit of the education that they're, that they're receiving. Getting stuck halfway across the river is not a recipe for success. Well, Undersecretary Mitchell, thank you so much for your perspective, and we really appreciate you taking this time out. Yeah, thank you so much for your service and for being so refreshingly direct with uh, what you actually believe and, and what's going on. We really appreciate your help. Well, thank you, and thanks for taking on this important issue. All right, we've heard a lot in this episode about loan servicers, and up next we're going to talk to one of our own reporters here at The Payoff about the biggest and maybe the shadiest loan servicer there is. Stay tuned. Time now for our final segment, The Bottom Line, where we take a look at a story from the world of business news and break down why you should care and how it will affect your bank balance and life as a whole. So we've talked about our own student loans and how the government deals with student loans, but what about the companies that actually manage student loans? When you're sending payments in for your student loans each month, you're sending them to a company that's collecting those payments and keeping track of how much you've paid back. Those companies are called loan servicers. And the biggest one in the country for student loans is a company called Navient which incidentally used to be called Sally Mae, a distinctly friendlier sounding name. Lucky for us, we have with us James Denon, payoff reporter extraordinaire, who's back on our show to explain exactly what happened there. James, thanks so much for being here with us again. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so James, you wrote a story about this earlier in the year. What actually happened with Navient? All right, so basically this was an enforcement action from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is this government agency that was uh, set up in the wake of the financial crisis to like really look at the terms agreements that people were signing to look at all of those confusing things for signs that that companies were maybe ripping people off. What they alleged about Navient was that they were, quote, illegally failing borrowers at every stage of the repayment. They were doing a lot of little things that were unnecessarily confusing and costing young people lots of money over the long term. Yeah, you don't really want to be failing at every level. That's never a good thing. Exactly. It's lots of it was lots of little things. So I think one of the most important things that they were doing to understand um, has to do with this thing called income based repayment. Um, this is really common in fields like uh, if, if you want to be like an actor or a journalist or something where you maybe aren't making a little bit of a lot of money for the start of your career. Uh, you can enroll in a thing called income-based repayment, which caps the amount of your monthly pay- payments based on your income. The hitch about that, which a lot of people don't understand, is you have to prove your income every year. So you have to re-enroll in the program every single year you, that you want to do it. CFPB said that uh, Navient wasn't making that clear to borrowers. So borrowers didn't know that they had to re-enroll next year, so they didn't confirm their, new, their income was still low, uh, so their payments shot up. And when the payments shot up, people, people were screwed. Wow. So it's just such a small, simple thing that like you had to fill out a form and they didn't tell people they had to fill out the form. They I mean, they do. They're legally required to notify you. Um, and this is where, you know, the CFPB is is really important because like a lot of a lot of the, the 
you know, money agreements, if you send a credit card statement, they're long and they're really confusing. Mm-hmm. And you companies sometimes bury clauses in there. You might be accidentally waving away rights that you don't know that you're waving away. And yeah, so, I'd say the most common lie in all of our lives is I have read this terms of agreement. Yeah. I would, that's 100% the most common lie out there is, <laughs> yes, I have read this and agree. And so basically they were saying that they might have been notifying people but it was maybe it was in a, you know, a written notice that it wasn't clear that the people were getting it. It was buried in a deep email with a whole bunch of reminders and written in like the most confusing way possible and written in and written in, you know, legalese. So it was just people people didn't quite realize it wasn't immediately clear to them that there were huge consequences for not re-enrolling an income based repayment every year. It's not just income-based repayment, though. No, they were doing other things, too. Perhaps the most dastardly thing um, that was in the CFPB's finding. Most dastardly? I'm very (laughs) excited for this. So basically, uh, it has to do with veterans. So if you're a veteran and you've got student loans and you get injured in the line of duty, uh, you're you're off the hook for for those loans. It's called the Total and Permanent Disability Discharge Program. Um, And that makes sense. If you've you've injured yourself in the line of battle for your country, you, you should get off the hook for student loans. There's almost... No way to get off the hook for your student loans. It's one of the stickiest kinds of debt out there. That's one of the few outs that there is. And so what happened was Navient, uh, they weren't reporting that these loans had been rightfully discharged uh, because these were veterans. Uh, What they did was they indicated that the veterans were actually defaulting on their loans. Defaulting is absolutely financially devastating. It's when you're three months, you haven't made a payment. What happens is the entire balance of your loan comes due. So instead of paying late fees on $300 a month or whatever your monthly payment is, you start paying late fees and interest on the whole balance. So tens of thousands of dollars. It it can absolutely ruin your credit. I mean, it costs tens of thousands of dollars. It's really bad. And that was even though these service people technically owed nothing now. They owed nothing. Yeah. They were getting notices as though they owed everything. Right. Well, what happened was Navient was supposed to report them as as the loans had been discharged, and they reported them as being in default to all the credit bureaus and everything. So all of these veterans— That is, dastardly yeah. is the only word. And so what's happening now? Uh, what's happening now? Well, Navient flatly denied all the allegations in the CFPB's report. Cool. Um, their line on this is that it's sort of a politically motivated thing. So one of the big uh, curveballs, nobody knows what's going to happen— that resulted from Donald Trump's election has to do with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's not very popular among Wall Street and finance and and the financial services industry. They've wanted to get rid of it for years because all of these settlement actions are kind of expensive for them. And so Navient's line is that this is politically motivated. You know, the CFPB is clearing out the docket because they know they have a limited time clock to to do all of the enforcement actions that they had, that they want, that they were working on. So how does this story and what's going on with service providers in general, how does that affect our bank balances or the people who are listening? How does it actually affect our money? It, it, it affects your bank balance if you're dealing with student loans in particular, because, you know, now Navient is going to be very careful about reminding you if you're on an income-based repayment plan that you need to re-enroll every year. Because the CFBP fined them millions of dollars for not doing that. And they've created, they've now created a powerful incentive for them to do it. And, you know, it's not in the law that you have to be very conspicuous or send a certain number of notifications or all of that. And so without the CFPB creating that watchdog effect, you know, these companies, they're going to be less diligent about reminding you about these things. They're going to feel less of a pressure to give you every available opportunity to make the adjustments that you need so that you're not going to end up paying higher fees, that you're not going to end up 
paying for longer. They want you to be a customer for a long time, you know. And so with without the CFPB, yeah, it's death by a thousand cuts. It's not going to be a two, three thousand dollar bill the moment that the CFPB goes away. But it's going to be, you know, few dollars in hidden fees every month that you maybe weren't as made aware and clear to you ahead of time. Um, and that's that, money in all of our bank accounts that's going to add up. That yeah, matters. it adds up. It, I mean, it adds up really, really fast. Well, James, thank you so much for coming back on the show, and we can't wait to have you back again. Yeah, thanks so much for explaining this. Thank you so much. It was great being here. That's it for this episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is from Breakmaster Cylinder, and our producer is Alan Haverchak. Thanks, Alan, and thank you so much to everyone for listening. If you want to help us out, you can do that by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review for the payoff. Seriously, you have no idea how much that helps. Plus, we love to know what you think. Also, if you have any ideas for what we should talk about next, email us at payoffpod at mike.com. We've really been enjoying reading those emails from you. And also, you can find out more about us on Twitter at The Payoff by Mike or online at mike.com slash The Payoff. See you next time.